Today, I'm delighted to invite in our midst Dr. J. Van Bevo. I am thrilled to have Jay with us today because he focuses on an area that to me is in some ways at the very essence of life and work, of life and leadership, which is who are you really? What is your identity and how is it shaped and formed by the forces around you? Jay is the Associate Professor of Psychology and Neural Science and the Director of the Social Identity and Morality Lab at NYU which itself is a fascinating set of titles, isn't it? He got his PhD from the University of Toronto and did a postdoc fellowship at the Ohio State University. His research examines how group identities, moral values, and political beliefs shape the mind, the brain, and behavior, and addresses issues of group identity, social motivation, cooperation, implicit bias, moral judgment, decision-making, and much more. He is the co-author of the recently published, and I highly recommend this book, The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. What could be a more critical need than that of the hour? He is featured on leading media such as the New York Times and BBC, Scientific American, Wall Street Journal, has consulted, among others, to the White House, United Nations, the European Union, and the WHO, and spoken at several psychology departments and business schools uh, and beyond. So thank you for joining us today. Jay, it is a real pleasure to have you in our midst. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. No, it's um, I, I mean it because uh, the themes that you study have been like I was mentioning to our listeners, very, very close to my heart. You know, some time back, I recorded my first, you know, TEDx talk, and it was kind of on this topic. I, you know, the title of the talk is, Who Am I Really? The whole idea was to really invite people to do a more formal and conscious introspection on the work that you do, which is, uh, let's actually get really clear about identities and what roles they play. So what got you interested in this topic, you know, early in your career? Yeah, I mean, there was a number of things that got me interested in it. Uh, one, I'm a huge fan of sports. And so I had the experience of like playing competitive sports at a young age and feeling immediately immersed with my teammates. Uh, you know, I, I remember growing up and having this one friend. And if ever he was on my team when we were playing like pickup sports at the field, uh, we were the best of friends. And if, you know, by coin flip, we ended up on the other team, we were like arch enemies because we were both very competitive and just quickly identified with whatever team we were on. And then I started my PhD and I was studying uh, things like racial bias and implicit bias. And I wanted to understand what you could do to get rid of these things. And my research for my PhD looked at the effect of putting people on a mixed race team uh, was often sufficient to get rid of their biases, at least, you know, for the short time that we had them in the study. And one of the things it did was it just made them develop in that moment a different identity that was more inclusive. And when they had that more inclusive, even these things that were triggered automatically in their mind, these other biases that they built up through years and years of media exposure and, and living in the world uh, went away. And so that was, you know, to me, when I got those data, the first few studies I got, I was really blown away by that. And it really just kind of affirmed my own experiences playing sports and, and how the psychology of identity actually worked. Wow. Wow. I assume when you talk about biases, you mean putting people of mixed races in a group who may have had racial biases, right? Like that's what you're referring to? Yeah. So it reminds me of a visit I made. I don't know if you've been there. I know you write very fondly about Nelson Mandela in your book. And I am a big fan of him as well. I've um, invested a fair amount in studying him as well. Uh, I really liked your portrayal of uh, the identity forming that he was doing 
uh, when he became president of South Africa and sought to bring the country together. Perhaps we can come back and talk about that. But this incident I'm referring to now is something that I um, stumbled into when I was visiting Robben Island. Uh, have you been there at all, Jay? No, no, I haven't. I've always wanted to go. Definitely, definitely worth uh, worth a visit. I'm sure you'll get to go there sometime. So, so we go there as a family. We're you know kind of going around, getting all these stories from actually people who used to be in prison, you know, with him at, at that time. So some of them are you know are still there, and they're you know the ones who are actually the the tour guides. And anyway, but there was also within each of the prison cells there was a little kind of message from the person who had for the most part populated the prison cell, you know, for, for several years. And in one of them, I remember I was so struck by this observation that person made. And he said that what we noticed is that over a period of time, the prison guards and we started to get to know each other. And then, you know, the biases just started to drop. The prison guards realized that we were not like the inferior race that we had been made out to be in their white education at that time. And, so, and also we realized that actually these people had been brainwashed. And once that veil was cleared from them, they were actually not evil or bad or judgmental. They were actually pretty, you know, so... So I thought that was that was pretty amazing. I mean, that speaks a little bit to what you just said, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's really profound. That's part of the power of contact. And so what happens when you have negative stereotypes of groups, and I can imagine this was particularly bad in apartheid South Africa, is that the white South Africans wouldn't have wanted to interact with black South Africans because they would have heard all these horrible things. But the fact of those types of stereotypes is if you don't interact with another group, you can't overcome those stereotypes. You cling to them because you don't have the chance to contradict them. And that's why uh, contact, if it, especially if it's done well, can help erode those types of false beliefs and, and create the potential for more cohesion and, and uh, cooperative contact. I was thinking of extending what you just said to looking at history through that lens. And if you think about it, in the past, people didn't have the capacity to travel long distances. So they kind of like stayed within the communities. Then you had the explorers. You know, and they and took their ships and kind of went off to distant lands. But then we got a very edited and contained uh, and in some ways a very uh, biased in some ways, I guess, commentary on who lives on the other side because of yeah. just like whatever filters were being used by those explorers. Uh, but then over time today, everybody can travel and everybody can get exposed to everybody else. And even those who can't, you know, through the Internet can get connected with all of them. So there must be something happening today that because of the travel and contact, as you said, is helping to raise human consciousness? Yeah, the key is that contact has to operate in the right way. And I think like people who travel, you know, take the opportunity to like explore other cultures, that there's research showing that that tends to give them like a more cosmopolitan, open-minded kind of way of thinking about the world and interacting with other people. Of course, there's a bit of a self-selection bias, right? The type of people who opt, like yourself, to travel to South Africa are often people who are more open-minded uh, to begin with. And so what you want to do to create positive contact is actually have pretty equal status if you can, which is sometimes hard to do. And you want them to be working towards something they're cooperating for. Because if you have contact and people are in competition and they have unequal status and stereotypes, that contact can actually make things worse and it can backfire. And so you really want to, if you have people interacting, and I think this is what a lot of travel does, especially where you have the opportunity to try different foods, be exposed to different cultures, meet different people, be really open-minded about it. Those are the types of rich cultural experiences that give you a kind of more open-minded perspective about different people than yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. I am also taking, you know, to back to recounting how there were, for example, during the British Raj, you know, some some people who would visit India from the Canolian power 
and they would end up judging, you know, just because of the differences, differences in food, differences in music, different, you know, judging it to be an inferior civilization. And uh, to your point about the manner of contact that is happening, I wonder if, you know, their views have been so tainted by past commentators, you know, that they had been reading about India from in, in their own, you know, cocoons, that they were actually already coming to India with a little bit of that prejudgment in that, I mean, you know, and again, I just make that up as an example between the dynamics between two groups at that point in history. Of course, it's vastly different now, but um, it speaks to me about what you just said about the, I guess, the incoming conditioning that you, you know, that you either yeah. try to foster or create or, or that people just have. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of we're, we're being marinated in that all the time, right? When we're exposed to media, books, TV, stories that we hear from other people, if those are tainted with bias, then we start to internalize that and normalize it and often don't question it until we have the chance to be exposed to something different. But, but what, one of the things we try to show with our book is that when you have a biased perspective and you also have a, if you're clinging to a certain identity, that becomes a lens that you filter your, the way that you interpret things from other people especially ambiguous things. So if you see something ambiguous, that's neither good or bad. If you, if it looks like something from another group that you don't like, then you interpret it in the, in the, you know, darkest possible way. If it's from a member of your own group, you spin it and interpret it in a positive light. And so that's one way that we can filter cultural practices from other groups. That if we have existing negative stereotypes, we see something, we might see it as an opportunity to embrace difference learn something, enrich our, our view of the world. But if we see it through the lens of these negative stereotypes, or we see it as a threat to our identity, we can actually see it as, as really a bad thing. Wow. You know, that's reminding me of a story that really gripped me in your book. And congratulations for all the, you know, all the rich stories that you put in The Power of Us, because, uh, Jay, I mean, it really brings these ideas to life. It really brings these ideas to life. I have savored, you know, all of these stories that you've put. You've uh, cast some of them in the context of psychological experiment-based storytelling around we conducted an experiment like this and this is what we noticed and then this happened or somebody else did. Uh, and I think those stories are powerful uh, unto themselves. But then the more uh, lived stories of actually, you know, moments in history and sports and politics and business and beyond, uh, those, those are incredible. And so I was wondering if you can actually share a gift of one of these stories with us because when you, when you speak about kind of how uh, one group, you know, looks at another and the context where even when there's contact, sometimes it can go more downhill rather than upwards in terms of the level of understanding and cooperation because of some dynamic, right? So can you talk about the, is it the Dassler brothers or the Dassler brothers? How do you? I think it's the Dassler brothers. Okay, Dassler so this brothers. is this is the story that we used to open our whole book. And it was these two cobblers in Germany uh, before World War II. And they, they started, you know, creating building shoes, uh, I think it was in their mother's basement. And eventually they became so successful that they made the track shoes that Jesse Owens wore at the 1936 Berlin uh, Olympics. So in Germany, Jesse Owens was uh, an African-American athlete and he was basically the star of those Olympics. He went and he completely dominated the sprinting events. And uh, I think he won three gold medals at that, at that games. And uh, this was a massive rebuke to Hitler, who was in power at the time and saw the games as a way to showcase the power of Germany and his Aryan worldview. And this black American comes in and completely dominates like the, the main, you know, the 100 meter sprint and, and the relay. And these shoes were created actually by two Germans. Now, a couple of years later, obviously, uh, Hitler started World War II. And by a, a few years later, the Allies were bombing South Germany 
And these two Dassler brothers, Addy and Rudy were their names. Um, one of them was hiding in a bunker with his family and the other brother came running to jump into the bunker. And he's, and uh, there's many stories about why this rivalry started. But one of them was that as he jumped into the bunker, he said, the bastards are here. And he, you know, he may have been talking about the warplanes coming to bomb Southern Germany, but his brother thought he was talking about him and his family. And so this set apart, this set in motion a rift that lasted decades and tore apart this little town that they were in. So up until that point, they had a shoe company that they worked at together that at that point, before the war had become very famous. But after that point, they decided to part ways. And so they created two factories, shoe factories in the same small town in Southern Germany. One was in the south of town and there was a river that cut through the middle of the town. And then the other factories on the north of town. And essentially what happened is it divided the town that you formed an alliance with one shoe company or the other. And it became known as the town of bent necks because as people walked around the town, they were constantly looking over and, and seeing what shoes you were wearing to judge whether they should interact with you. And if you were wearing the wrong pair of shoes, it meant that they couldn't date you, that you weren't allowed into the restaurants and bars on that side of town. And so, so it became the signature social identity of that town. And it lasted until the two brothers died, till Addy and Rudy both died. And, the, and at the end of the story um, is they both insisted on being put in the local town graveyard on opposite ends of the graveyard. So even, even in their death, they, they continued this rivalry. Um, and, and the other part of the story is these shoe companies went on to become world famous. And so this is Adidas, which was Addy's company, and Puma, which is, which is Rudy's company. And so now they're two of the world's you know, behemoth corporations in shoe and sports manufacturing. But this was the identity that divided this town. And it's a really powerful story about identity, right? Because if you go to that town and you joined one of these companies, you were like loyal for life. And even if you didn't work at the company, if you lived on that side of the river, you served only people from that uh, shoe manufacturer. And so these were people who had really no differences in terms of their religion or their ethnicity or their value system or belief system. Their socioeconomic status was very similar because they're in the same small town, they the same nationality. And so all of these things we normally think of as part of like identities being divided apart and creating conflict were not apparent in this situation. All it was was kind of what random side of the river you were born on or whether or not you had a parent who worked at one of these shoe manufacturers. And that set in motion all of these things that we think of as part of like sectarian intergroup identity based conflict, including, like I said, who you could date or who you could marry, where you could eat. And so it really just goes to show you the power of identity and that it doesn't have to often have to be attached to these other types of value laden things that we think of as related to identity. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's so many incredible facets to that story, right? And um, the fact that they ended up becoming these two world-dominating brands, both of them, yeah. uh, is obviously one of those very incredible facets. And the the business students in my class, I know, are going to want to hypothesize there that maybe actually the social identity they formed of this very competitive rivalry, us versus them, it became so core to who they were that actually it propelled them in some ways to high performance based on that kind of like competitive spark that it may have lit, which may or may not otherwise have been present in terms of the motivational factors. So that is just, I know, a voice from one of my students playing in my head. I'm just visualizing if we were having this conversation in my class. How would you respond to that? Do you think that even when there is that kind of divisive, competitive kind of social identities that you sometimes form between you and another group, that it can actually have a 
positive impact in propelling you to high performance and motivation? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. We never actually mentioned that in our book, but I think you're exactly right, is that a lot of organizations are focused on rank ordering their employees. Even at where I work at New York University, every year they rank order all the faculty based on our productivity and give us a raise determined by how many publications we got or grants we got that year. But that's almost a perfectly designed way to just get people thinking in terms of their individual identity and their competition, competition with their colleagues. What this does when you have group level competition is it actually induces cooperation among all your employees because you're trying to outcompete this other company. And so, yeah, we have to think of like what a shock it is that this one small town in Southern Germany produced two of the biggest brands in all of sports manufacturing in the world. Well, what is the, what is the cultural ingredient there? And I think you're right that part of it must have been that they had these powerful identities that were constantly cooperating because they were so focused on outcompeting uh, the shoe company across town, that that made probably, uh, I think, a big part of their cultural excellence, their cohesion, willingness to cooperate, work together, be innovative, build like a really coherent sense of like brand identity that they could then export throughout the country and around the world. And so that's the type of thing that can often compel uh, all kinds of groups forward, whether we're talking about companies and brands, or as I said, I got into this in part because I'm interested in sports teams too. And if you think about great sports teams, this is the cauldron that they live in. Winning championships isn't about often having the best players. It's finding a way to get those players to cooperate so that they can beat other teams with great players. And so yeah. that is often the key that, that coaches and, and general managers and organizations look to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I once read a a cover story in you know Business Week, I think it's become what is it Bloomberg uh, Business Week now or just Bloomberg? I forget what the magazine is called now, but it used to be called Business Week, like you know about 15 years ago, and um, it was about how revenge is often like a really compelling force in you know business, you know, and it gave as an example a couple of uh, senior leaders from Oracle who had left under a cloud with Larry Ellison, like at a point where he was kind of unhappy with them or something, so he just fired them. But, you know, according to them, they were like doing really good work. And so but that became like the motivation for them to start their startup, to compete against Oracle on some dimension of the IT business and, you know, et cetera. And um, here I am. I'm teaching a class on personal leadership. I'm trying to codify what I think are laws of nature about like what it takes to be at our fullest potential. And among those laws, you know, there are certain 10 commandment like things that I'm sort of like discovering, right? Trying to fuse modern psychology with like timeless wisdom. So things like like thou shalt not hate, you know, thou shalt not be vengeful, you know, and all of those things. Right. So so I have to reconcile these two worlds, you know, and, and there is research today to show that, um, you know, forgiveness is uh, actually, you know, an important virtue to cultivate that it actually makes you less stressed and, you know, less unhappy in time and healthier and, you know, all, all of the other good stuff. Uh, but then what about this, this primal force, you know, in humanity where sometimes when you hate something or you really have this grudge against something or you have this competitive drive against something to beat them, that, that actually can motivate you. And I don't know what you think, but like the conclusion I've come to and I'm testing it with you, Jay, is that... Uh, on the one hand, yes, it is true that those kinds of like anchor points of something from the outside to compete with or hate or judge or whatever can create that what you just said, all those forces of cooperation and support amongst all of us, motivation to kind of rise to a high full. But at the same time, it is also there's a risk that it can lead to certain blinders, dead ends, burnouts, negativity in the space that we, you know, the uh, limiting uh, possibilities of not 
actually cooperating with the other party in some you know context where where maybe that would have been better etc and so there's a third place there's an even higher place to get to which is not about being passive but nor is it about being vengeful and competitive but somehow you know being really on fire to be of service to humanity and you know bring the best version of yourself and when i think about in the context of sports since you brought up your interest in sports jay you know i'm sure you're familiar with john wooden right and um, you know the basketball coach right and one thing i've noticed with him is uh, something like that like he had this ethos of just trying to like activate in every one of his players this humanity this hunger and desire to strive to be the best version of themselves hold themselves accountable based on their own inner assessment inner judgment not like how the coach is thinking of them or somebody else and whatever so i just i just wonder that yes maybe the competitive thing is like one way to get you short term winning outcomes and yet there could be a level of human consciousness that maybe we'll evolve to where societies nations and all of that could perhaps um, i i don't know what, what thoughts yeah i mean that i think is the optimal way to think about it i i think competition can push us you know to try to achieve these types of things and can be beneficial but you don't need it as long as and there's lots of research on this in in the groups literature that groups can come together and cooperate as long as they have a higher order goal and that higher order goal can be something like helping humanity and so you can think again I'll I'll go outside the sport domain for a second and say you could have groups like doctors without borders which are very mission driven and attacked attract mission driven people the more that you're willing to sacrifice your own life to help people all around the world and benefit them in some way and so that's the type of thing i think that would be optimal and that's a really powerful form of identity you could also have competition uh, and i think of like i don't know if we mentioned this in our book but i've written about it before is the olympics are actually like the height of competition it's very intense for people it's often their life stream to be in the olympics and often olympic athletes aren't making a lot of money they're doing it cuz they they care about it uh, but the olympics is also incredibly peaceful in fact uh, i remember reading this story about the olympic village and so many people were having sex with one another so all these athletes from different countries that are really attractive and in great shape that they have to hand out like thousands of condoms in the olympic village because it's such it's such a a hookup environment and so well why is it, why are you hooking up with someone that you're competing against from another country you're trying to compete win medals against them um it's because there's this special identity as being an olympian that means part of what that means to be an olympian is not just competing to your very very best but also like having this kind of sense of sportsmanship that you get along and support one another and there that you're trying to transcend kind of the you know the lower level aspects of sports that it's not purely about competition it's about coming together and doing something even bigger than that and so i think like there are ways to create identities that are inclusive that people are working towards something but also bring out the best of us and so i think that's the type of environments that that are optimal and so it sounds like john wooden he was a coach at ucla right when they were the yes, best team yes. in in the country and so um when you think and he i i mean to my knowledge he's the best coach in the history of of NCAA basketball or close to it so when you think of great truly great coaches and 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 college sports is a really good example because it's not like professional sports where you might get lucky and have a couple superstars for for 10 or 15 years on the team you're constantly turning over players and so the coaches that succeed at the college level often are ones who have a great system and are great mentors and create a great sense of cohesion year after year despite all their stars graduating each year and going on to 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 leave or play in the pros and so th- th- i think that's often like a really good place to look for great forms of leadership because that's often how it works in organizations that you do have turnover and yet you have to show up you know get people to show up and work together and be excellent each day and so i think that's a great model and way to think about it for sure yeah yeah 
Awesome, awesome. I'm going to use this as a point at which to focus in on a theme that's emerging in the conversation, which is, you know, we're talking about identities, folks. And Jay here is an expert, having done so much research on this topic, in addition to having seen it in his own lived experience, the power of identity. And you're talking here about, in some ways, the fluidity of identity, you know, seeing it at one level, but then zooming out and seeing it at another level, you know, those people from different nations competing with each other at the Olympics, but then zooming out and seeing themselves all part of the same collective kind of family of athletes, you know, in the world. So this notion of fluidity, this notion that our identity is not like a fixed thing, because I think that's kind of like a limiting just myth out there with people that I am this, 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 but actually without them knowing it, actually they themselves are evolving and changing their identity all the time, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think if it just, well, I'll go through, you know, my, my day, like I got up, I had to get my kids to summer camp. And so I'm a dad. I'm not thinking at all about work or or anything else. I'm trying to get their lunch and get them walked to school. And then I come back and now I'm on this podcast. I'm thinking about myself as an author. And then when I get off this, I'm going to have to meet with some of my students. I'm thinking about myself as professor and then later as a lab director because I have to like uh, coordinate something for my lab. And then I run our social psychology program. And that's a different identity. I have to think about how to optimize outcomes for the whole uh, graduate program and faculty. And so even in a single day, I go through like six or seven identities. And then at night, maybe I turn on the sports and I'm cheering for my favorite baseball team. Um, and I'm not thinking about any of the other identities I have in my mind. And so most of us go through this in the course of a day. And each time we shift into another identity, a different set of concerns and goals float to the front of our mind. We have a different lens about thinking about what's important and how to navigate that situation. And so all of us are doing this all the time. And so it really is a, an illusion to think that we are just one thing. Or I think the way it really is an illusion is that we think when we see somebody, they are just one thing. They are just, you know, often we, we chunk them, and this is the social psychology of stereotyping. We quickly categorize them based on their gender, their, their age, their ethnicity or skin color, and we quickly lump them into something and we attach a stereotype to it. But almost every single person is vastly more complex than that. They contain multitudes. And once you get talking to them, they almost never exactly fit what your stereotype is. And, and they often have these other rich identities. And you might look like you di are different from them in many ways. The moment you have a conversation, engage with them, you, you find out you actually share a lot of identities and beliefs and values. And so I think that, that group stereotypes serve to obscure us uh, from the complexity and fluidity of, uh, especially of other people's identities. And I think even our own sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. There's uh, so much richness to this theme. Uh, let me kind of slow things down a little bit to help us unpack some of the power in that in that punch, right? So um, one of the things you're saying is that when you take on... So, so let's first maybe focus on the identities you take on for yourself. And then let's come back and talk about the identity lens through which you are viewing others and therefore how it makes you think about them. So when it comes to your own self, right, the, the thing that I, I was really, I found powerful in, in, in your work is the realization that based on the identity you're taking on, it's going to unconsciously start to influence how you think, how you behave, how you act in that moment. And therefore, in some ways, what values you're, you know, being able to express the capabilities you're able to bring. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. It was a beautiful summary that once we activate an identity in our mind, it brings forward all our goals and values associated with that identity. And so again, when I'm thinking of myself as a father, I'm thinking of myself as like making sure I take care of my kids, protecting them, nourishing them. And 
the moment I'm thinking about myself as an author, it's really not any of those goals anymore. It's thinking about like, how can I communicate this well? How can I connect it to different audiences? Um, when I'm thinking about myself as a professor, I'm thinking about how can I do rigorous scientific research? How can I make sure that my students are flourishing? And so you're worried about and thinking about different concerns and deep in each different audience. And, and those are triggered in large part by the identities that are at the front of our mind. And so I think a big part of, of, our, of our responsibility as humans is to figure out what identities we actually care about and we actually want to lean into. So it might be like a member of my community, might be a member of my religious community for some people, uh, you know, might be my parenting role or, or work role. And then we can think of how do we want to change those? And so if we're in identity groups and we care about those identities, what can we do to change the norms and help those identities flourish and other people in those identities flourish? And then the last thing, and, and this is the big one, if you have a position of power or leadership, is that leaders play a huge role in shaping the identities of groups they belong to. And so we have a whole chapter on, on leadership and in particular what's known as identity leadership. And we argue, we borrow from uh, Steve Reicher and Alex Haslam who have, who have said leaders are entrepreneurs of identity. What that means is they're constantly creatively thinking of ways to build a sense of us so that people all feel on the same page and are excited and motivated to work towards something together. And I'll just say from my own experience running a lab at, at NYU, um, when I first arrived, I tried to have all of my different, my graduate students and PhD students and postdocs, I'd have a different project with each of them. And I was mentoring each of them. And I, I actually think I'm a pretty good mentor, got lots of positive feedback, lots of successes. But where I went wrong was I never built a shared sense of purpose, a shared sense of identity about what our lab was doing. And so occasionally they would feel like they were competing against one another and in a race to get their papers out from one another. And at one point it kind of boiled over and three of them came to my office and said, we feel like we're all competing. We're doing stuff that's too similar. And I realized even though their project seemed different enough to me, they felt like they were competing because I created a context where they felt like they were at odds. And so they weren't cooperating and helping each other with little things that make the whole lab flourish. And so from then on, in the last 10 years, I've really focused on creating a sense of us. And that comes through all kinds of things, the language that I use, having people work on different projects together so they feel like they're collaborating and they have shared goals, talking about our lab vision every year, um, making them a part of that conversation about what do they think the lab vision should be, talking about a community that goes beyond who's in the lab now. And this is something I learned from uh, the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team, which is the best team in the world. They have these, these great traditions that are about identity. One of them is that there's a no dickheads rule, which basically means no matter how good you are, you're not better than anybody else on the team. You can't mistreat anybody else, no matter how good you are. There's no one above the team. And then another thing they have is that they call it leave the jersey in a better place. And what this means is that you're not just part of a group on the team right now, that your identity as an all black precedes you coming onto this team and continues after you've left that your goal is to make the organization better so that when the next group of players comes on next year or five years or 20 years from now, they have a better chance of success because of what you did now. You did something to make the organization and culture better. And so that's really the kind of uh, environment I've tried to create now. And now my lab is really flourishing. We're about five times as productive as we were when I first started. And we have people who continue to come back and visit us who are gone and collaborate with us. And, 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 you know, spread the word about our lab. It becomes really easy to recruit a top talent once you have this reputation and retain top talent. We almost never, ever lose anybody. And so when you have this type of environment, it, it pays off and it becomes easy. It's like I can, I can work half as hard and be three times as successful because there's a great culture that just self-perpetuates. But I was never thinking through that lens before. And I was always 
running and working extra hard and even then having these conflicts between people in my group. So you really have to, once you become a leader, step outside that. It took me several years to figure that out. What a beautiful story to share from your personal journey and with such practical insights, you know, that any of all of us can uh, can apply. In fact, it's coming at a very timely moment because we, as in uh, through the, our Mentora Institute, you know, have launched a foundation, a nonprofit with the purpose of helping develop change makers, you know, for today's time across various disciplines who will go out there and help reassemble, you know, the world now that we are dismantling the old order, you know, into into the right, right form and, um, you know, teach them principles of um, you know, constructive change making. And so we have 19 of these youth, you know, college kids, very talented, very committed from different parts of the world, four continents coming over. And uh, we're launching into this starting tomorrow, actually. And uh, I was just thinking about what's the core initial kind of spark message journey direction that I need to make sure. Yes, of course, there's all the training that all the projects are all the things we're going to do. But what is that core initial thing that I need to do to make sure we get off to the right start and to make sure that we stay connected? Because the quest here is to ultimately create like a lifelong fellowship. And so many of the things that you're talking about really resonate with me because I've been also noodling on the same kinds of ideas that I've got to find a way to help them create a very sense of collective identity, some shared language, maybe some rituals that we can embed in the way we do things so that people feel reinforced that we're all in this together. We may go out to the rest of the, you know, across the world, you know, after this program is over and do our own things, but we're always going to be connected, you know, and then how do I kind of just make sure that they feel a commitment and a need to come back and contribute and shape the future of this thing that they're right now, you know, taking from, right? So I, I love what you just shared about the way you evolved in your relationship with your group. I don't know if you know Oban Eastwood, but he is, um, you know, a dear friend. He's a coach um, and he works with, you know, some of the top teams, you know, in, in sports and in the military, what have you, out of, out of the UK, you know, comes with roots from, uh, New Zealand and the Maori community there. And and he's written a book called Belonging. I don't know if you've come across that, but if you haven't, Jay, I'd love to send you a copy of that book. I think I think you'll enjoy it because, you know, many of these ideas he, he evokes more through studying the history of, you know, kind of ancient cultures and and then, you know, kind of like using it as a, a catalyst for helping to guide the creation of high-performing teams with a strong sense of belonging. I would love to read it. I mean, and I love the story of what you're trying to do with the youth. And And I would say like the... The, the story that he builds these off the principles of the Maori is actually part of how the New Zealand All Blacks culture is built. Like they actually, before every game, have a haka dance, which is a Maori ritual. To yeah. It's physical synchrony. It, it attack, it's the ritual that you mentioned before and how important those are to groups. And it yeah. actually is a chance. It's incredibly intimidating, but it also binds and bonds all the players yeah. together before each game. It's really beautiful too. And, yeah. um, and it's also an homage to that traditional ritual in, in New Zealand culture. And so um, I, I would say that like part, when I, when I think of like traditional rituals, there's something that is really powerful about it because the ones that have survived are the ones that probably through cultural evolution worked best for binding groups together. And so they, those groups succeeded in parts because they had rituals that made cooperation easier for them to do in, in, in environments that were often really precarious and dangerous. And so I think there's a lot of insights to be learned from those rituals. And then the other thing I'd say is that those rituals often come from environments in which our brain evolved. And so I'm, I take like an evolutionary biology understanding of, of human psychology, which is that our brains evolved almost through the entirety of human history in small groups where we needed to cooperate. We told stories in small groups to communicate things. We didn't communicate using technology like we are here. And that's one of the reasons that we packed our book with stories because we knew the science 
And we wanted to find stories that helped transmit the science because stories is how the brain is designed to share and understand the world because that's what it's been doing almost through the entirety of human history. And it's been doing those in small groups. And so understanding and, and that, that that's part of our, almost like I would say like our natural social environment is us cooperating and communicating in small groups. It's important to understand that because when we can activate that psychology, not only does it motivate people to work together, but often feels really good. If you've ever been on a successful team, whether it's at work or, or in sports or in your youth, it feels good. And you often feel a bond with those people for years after. Like I, I can still stay in touch with people who are former teammates and I see them and it's like a decade has not passed because we built a bond that persists across time through those shared experiences and working together. You know, you can trust them. You know, they have your back. And that's also, you know, part of it, why this psychology is also really effective among military groups, because they have to defend one another in incredibly dangerous situations, sacrificing their life uh, to do it. And if you, and if you, I mean, I've read interviews with people who've been in, in war and my grandfather was a veteran. And what they say is that they actually do it not not often not even for their country they they do the things they do to defend and protect the people that are in the trenches with them because they have such a sense of bond with those with those individuals and so i think that that's the psychology that actually can be leveraged to do good things and so i love that you're using these insights uh to do this and i would say like if you're going to train these like youth we're going to go out and try to you know change the world in some way one of the things that's going to help them over a long period of time is that they have a community because they're going to hit roadblocks they're going to need to brainstorm. They're going to need fresh ideas. And if they have a sense of cohesion and they go back out into the world after this yeah. training, they can lean on this team for insights, support, connections, networking, ideas that are allow them to be vastly more powerful and expand their reach. I loved how you talk about things like collective language. That's one of the things that leaders do. Leaders that are successful use collective pronouns twice as often. There's also a new study that I didn't have time to put in my book because it came out after our book, but that it was based in Germany. Organizations that used a lot of collective language in their annual reports were vastly more profitable than those that didn't. And so I would say that that's the type of language that you want to use to create a sense that we're not, you're not competing with one another. We, we're bringing you all in as individuals because you're passionate for maybe different projects. But we're going to train you together. and You're going to be a team that's going to go out in the world and change the world in some way. And so they have a vision, a common goal, a sense of shared purpose, and that they're going to work and support one another rather than compete against one another to make that come to life, I think would be the, t the way to do it. And, and I love the idea of like thinking about what are some rituals. And, and I say that another thing about leadership is that it's not just top down, it's channeling the thoughts and ideas and creativity of the group. So, you know, when it comes to ritual, I would ask them what rituals they want to make as part of their group or that kind of emerge naturally and then try to find ways to foster and sustain them. Uh, because that also shows that you're as a leader listening to them and embodying the things that, that they care about and are bringing forward into the, into the conversation. Awesome. Awesome. If any of you are just launching a team or a project, taking on a new role in an organization, starting some other kind of new initiative, then here it is. You've just gotten a, you know, rich set of uh, just like, you know, great consulting here from Jay about <laughs> how to make sure you set, set things off on, on, on the right footing. You know, thank you for that encouragement as well. For my project, one of the things I was keen to do here was not focus just on, let's say, people wanting to help uh, do change making in business, you know, or in um, 
social activism or something. So th this, and, and I'm, I'm going to you know, come to a point I want to kind of like test with you. So, so these folks are coming from, you know, they're college kids right now. So they have, you know, they have a way to go, but in evolving their professional kind of, you know, direction. But uh, the intent we had was that, you know, we should mix people from across various disciplines. Some of them are interested in medicine, some in business, some in politics, some in writing and, you know, et cetera. And one of the reasons for that was that, again, this kind of comes back to identity now, is that this proverb about birds of a feather flock together, right? I also think the opposite is true. And I think this is validated by some of, you know, what you've written in the book, right? That birds who flock together, they kind of like become a one feather. You know, they just like start developing blinders on themselves and they don't realize that actually they may be doing things which the rest of the world is actually saying like, what the hell were you guys doing? You know, whether it's about the way we look from the outside at the practice of medicine or the practice of law or sometimes even, you know, the questionable aspects in the practice of politics or science or what have you. Right. People from the outside are more free to be able to do outside in critiques, which sometimes when you're anyway. So so the idea of like having within your sphere, your network, not just your own crowd, but also deliberately so constructed a community of people who are from a diversity of other disciplines? I don't know. What do you think about that being a critical need? I, I think it's absolutely critical. When I talked about, when I go around and talk about groups, that's one of the first critiques people have. And, and the terms for it are things like groupthink or blind conformity. Um, and, and they're often right. That does happen sometimes in cohesive groups. And so my co-author, Dominic Packer, on, on our book, The Power of Us, is actually an expert on the psychology of dissent. He's written many papers, has many theories about it. So we have a, a chapter on where it goes wrong, where you have kind of cult psychology in groups, where they all like are, are pressured to think the same thing. But we also have a chapter on healthy norms of dissent and things like psychological safety. And so we talk about how groups can go wrong, but also how, how groups can go right. And so I'll, I'll say a few things about how it can go right. One is, and there's lots of research on this in the organizational literature, and I'm studying this now in my own lab, is you have to create a conditions of psychological safety. So my favorite study on this was done at Google with uh, 200 teams or so, and they wanted to see what made some teams flourish and some teams flounder. And what they found was nothing predicted group success, <laughs> almost nothing. And, and Google is famous for crunching numbers and being very data-driven. And I think the quote from the study was like, we looked at personality types, leadership structure, whether it's hierarchical or horizontal, whether teams went out for like drinks before or after work, none of those things predicted group success. The only thing they found was psychological safety, which is a term popularized by Amy Edmondson, who's a business professor at Harvard. And what that means is not what many people think it means. It doesn't mean that you just like you need like a, you know, a, your your dog there, your emotional support dog, or it's a safe space where you can't no one gets allowed to challenge anybody. It's the opposite. It means everybody can challenge the ideas and the status quo and the leadership. Everybody can throw out new ideas and take risks. And who this particularly benefits not only is the team, but it, is a, it creates context where it gives voice to people who might not otherwise have voice. These might be newcomers to the team, diverse perspectives or people from diverse backgrounds who otherwise might not quite feel com comfortable speaking up because they might not be invited you know, to lunch tomorrow if they say the wrong thing or take a risk and fail. Suddenly you get harness all the perspectives and ideas and creativity of those people, which is often the types of ideas that are different from the status quo. What the research on dissent finds is that even if you have one dissenter, even if they're wrong in their idea, it actually leads to better group decisions because other people who were biting their tongue suddenly feel comfortable speaking up. And that yeah. leads to better group decisions. And then this is where Dominic's research comes in. The, he finds that the people who dissent 
are often the people who are most identified with a group because they can see the group going down a wrong path. And so if you have somebody in the group who's dissenting, you should really think carefully about giving them voice, making sure they're heard, because if you suppress them, they're often the people who care the most about the group and other people won't speak up if you suppress that dissent. So you really have to be careful about it if you wanna have a healthy group that's successful. And I'll give you an example of how I do this in my own group, my own lab group. I found that when I'm presenting a paper or something to the group and I want critical feedback, I don't say my opinion first. I actually try to bite my tongue until everybody else has spoken because I'm in a position of power. And if I have a very strong opinion, other people will only speak up if they agree with me. But if I let them give them space to share their opinion, they share all these interesting perspectives and critiques. And then I can kind of hear from them and realize maybe what the, sh the blind spots are in my thinking and incorporate them into the project. And so I've learned that to not speak first. Another thing that I was in a panel with uh, Maynard Webb, who was the former, I think, uh, CFO of eBay in the early days when eBay was exploding. And he said in their C-suite meetings of executive leaders, they had a black hat and everybody had to take a different turn wearing it. And if you were wearing the black hat for that meeting, your job was to poke holes in all the ideas being proposed, even if you agreed with them. And that was just to free up other people to feel comfortable challenging it and expressing their dissent. And so there's lots of ways you can kind of make bake this into your group processes and team meetings that makes psychological safety more real and fosters like a healthy form of dissent. Powerful. It just um, makes me wonder what it is that we can do to foster more of that quality in our society today, you know, in our social media and our journalism, in our personal dynamics and families and beyond, right? Because we are, as you know, you know, just so polarized right now and so reactive, emotional, judgmental, quick and to rush to a certain conclusion. Uh, some of the nuances are getting very, very compromised like along the way, right? And um, and the intentions are good. You know, the intentions are good. You know, one side wants to promote and push a certain cause. Another side wants to protect what they feel is already good, but, you know, the world and all of that. And so, but, you know, it's just the nuance is getting lost, right? And so, um, I don't know, have you, have you thought about what is it that you can do from the platforms you have to, I don't know, like provide some nudge forward to help open up society to, you know, slowing down, being a little bit more calmer, more objective, more assimilative, more welcoming of contrarian views. And anyway, I mean, I, I'd just be curious because it's, as I start this foundation and we help build change makers, one of the critical things I want to invite them to be invested in is not to necessarily just replicate the energy that is there today. Again, well-intentioned, but to take it to a Gandhian level, take it to a Mother Teresa-esque level, you know, and Eleanor Roosevelt level, very, very mature reformers of the past. I mean, I, I, that's aspirational. Those are, that's, that's some <laughs> yeah. of your, your all time heroes um, and mine too. Yeah. So I've been studying social media for the last seven or eight years in my lab. And, and what we found is that the type of rhetoric that people can use say on like Twitter or Facebook that, that spreads quickly and gets a lot of attention and likes and reinforcement is moral emotions. And so when people put a single moral emotional word in a tweet, it gets spread 15 to 20% more. And so you, if you want to spread your message, you can just load up on like, you know, I'm disgusted. I'm so full of contempt right now. Oh, I really yeah. am raging with anger and, and, and it will get re liked more. But when we analyzed about half a million messages that did this, what we found is when you use that language, suddenly it looks like two echo chambers. All of a sudden right. people who might otherwise engage with you don't. Yeah. And we ran studies in the lab to find out why. And when we show the exact same message, just using one of those words, 
makes people who disagree with you think you're close-minded and and it basically just serves a bat signal to signal to your fellow members of your group who you are um, and it doesn't really convince or persuade anybody in fact it makes them disengage with you and so we have to think carefully about is our goal to mobilize people um, or is our goal to persuade people? Because if you want to persuade them and you want to build a bigger coalition, you're going to have to use different language. If you just want to mobilize people who already agree with you, that language actually is pretty effective, um, at least at spreading the message online. And so what we need to do is think, I think, like a little bit more long term. And again, it depends on what your goal is. But if your goal is to like build a bigger coalition, you don't want people to see you as closed minded or, you know, um, disengaged from from others who disagree with them. You probably want you know, to find ways to bring those people to the table and have like a, most movements, it starts with Gandhi, who is like a, you know, I'll, I'll use him as like a moral exemplar, but eventually he built a massive movement that was able to pretty much overthrow British colonialism. And he did that by building a, an increasingly diverse coalition of people who were mobilized. Um, and also in my understanding of it, and, and it's admittedly naive, I'm not an expert, I, I'm not a historian, but it's also eventually on convincing British citizens to, to, to stop um, and to force their government to, to no longer uh, impose colonialistic uh, rule on India. So there is like, a, at some point, you need to expand your coalition. And so I think there's something really important about mobilizing true believers at the beginning. But I also think you need to think about like, how can we make our message optimally convincing for the broadest possible coalition of people that is sufficient to actually make change in the world? in a substantive policy-based way um, that will persist. Here's the other thing about building broad coalitions. You often need them if you're gonna make change that's gonna last after you step out of your role and you take the spotlight off them. Because I think one, right now, the world is very, um, reminds me of the marshmallow task, where we're very focused on like just getting what's in front of us and not thinking maybe two or three steps ahead. We wanna win now. And, and, and so a lot of organizations are willing to make a concession now, but you know, cause spotlight or pressures on them, but they'll just often go back to the old way of doing things unless you can actually convince them that it's in their interest to sustain that change. And so you really have to move from pressuring people to make a change to probably convincing them that actually the change is in their interest because that's how you actually create sustained uh, long-term impact. And so yeah. of, of the news you mentioned, you know, talk about Roosevelt, um, the social welfare system was was built and sustained for how many, you know, 80, 90 years now based on convincing people that things like social security are good. Once you have social security, people don't want to get rid of it. I mean, some people want to get rid of it, but enough people will not because it affects so many people in a positive way that it, that it will stick around. At that point, it's just a matter of how can you make it better and make it sustainable. Um, but I think that's kind of the, the ultimate change most activists want to make is not just, can we put the spotlight on them now? And I'll give you an example of how this failed because I've been looking at this data this week was during the Black Lives Matter movement, there was huge pressure on like okay, every organization in society to improve their racial justice. One example was in the fashion industry. They're using too many white models, not enough black or dark skin models. And so if you look at the Instagram feeds, there's a really good journalistic analysis of Instagram feeds of fashion houses over two years and seeing what happened from Black Lives Matter. A lot of them had black squares on that blackout day on Instagram. They made often uh, public statements about how they're gonna do better. And then you look and for a very month or two, they actually diversified their models. But if you look over the last two years, they just went back to what they were doing before because the, the spotlight is off them. The, the movement is kind of like, you know, moved away or fizzled or other movements. Right now it's Roe v. Wade's in the news and, and Russia and Ukraine and January 6th, these types of things. 
the spotlight has moved off that issue and these fashion houses just revert to what they've already been doing. And so I think not enough was done probably to think about what are you going to do to hold them accountable or what are you going to do to convince them maybe that like this is in their interest, that they should care about these these communities, these populations, if they want to have a long-term global impact and have people buy into this types of fashion and these buy into these fashion houses long-term other than alienating them. So I think like those are the, maybe it's a little bit of the conversation that we need to think of like on the back end of, of activism, what is going to be our long-term plan for sustainability? And, and, and that's hard to put on the activists, but hopefully that's part of the conversation I think that you want to ultimately like lead to is like sustain all, I think all of us, when we care about these things, care about long-term sustainable change. You know, if there was a Nobel Prize to be given for in a given week, what was like the most profound and important insight, you know, that uh, someone has propounded for that week, then Jay, and if I was on the Nobel Prize committee, you would get it for this week. Because, you know, this very um, inspired commentary that you've just given us, it's like really striking home for me, really striking home for me. It speaks to some of like the core ideals, you know, that, um, you know, we're aspiring to build the, the foundation in terms of building these change makers. You know, I, I've also observed based on, you know, in part, look what you're just saying, that example you gave of the fashion companies that a lot of, you know, emphasis in modern change movements is on changing something on the surface, changing a law, changing who's in the White House, you know, you know, changing a certain policy, putting a certain pressure on business to, you know, put some money into this cause. But to your point, is that actually going to be sustainable once, like you said, the limelight is pulled away and gone in some other direction? So the, the thesis I've evolved from, I've, I've come up with my book recently, Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, and I have like deep dive chapters and studies there of some of these change makers, you know, like the Mother Teresa's and the Gandhi's and the Lincoln's. And one of the things I've concluded about them is that their true impact was not as much in what they were doing on the outside, but what they were seeking to do, if you want to call it like on the inside, which is yeah. winning over people's hearts and minds. Because yeah. when you win over their hearts and minds, then you can look away the other way, you can die and leave. And then there is still some sustainability because you fundamentally shifted their motivations to do the right thing, right? And so that's coming to me from what you've, you know, what you've just said. And just as an example, I mean, and you also said something really beautiful about think not just about the present moment, think about the future. And my favorite story for that, and I'm hoping if I can to take our youth change makers in this pro program to get to, to Gettysburg, right? Uh, not, not that far away from New York City. But when you actually study this epic speech from Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address, you know, one of the most incredible things about that speech is what's not in that speech. So, you know, for example, he does not actually name the party that he's supporting, the union forces, or name the other party, the Confederate. He, he doesn't name them. You know, he, he doesn't, nor does he actually name Gettysburg as the battlefield. He doesn't really name the war. It's written in a way where actually it can inform and inspire future generations as well. And not just, you know, Americans. It could inspire anyone who's, you know, kind of like drawn to wanting to create like a purer democracy, you know, in, in, in their community. So he was, I think, looking at future generations and saying like, this is a moment in history where attention is concentrated. Who knows what historians will judge me for? But can I put a message out there which is like really universal? Yeah, I think that that, that is, I think you nailed something really important, which is that when we think back in history of great leaders, they were often tapping into something that is universal, that is a human desire that most humans given the opportunity would aspire towards. And Lincoln was one of those people, obviously Gandhi, Mother Teresa. Um, I mean, another one that comes to my mind is Martin Luther King. And so uh, we, we talk about in our book how his approval ratings nationally when he was alive, you know, around the time he gave the I Have the Dream speech were like in the 30% or so. So he wasn't a popular figure in his time and he was pushing for change. 
But but I think a couple things. One is that he actually was critical. Obviously, there's a key, a movement of, of activists, black activists mostly, who who pushed forward and convinced uh, LBJ to sign the Civil Rights Act, which was a major change in, in the living conditions of African Americans in this country for for many many years and reshuffled politics for 60 years now. But it was also something that the message was so universal that if you do national surveys now, where Martin Luther King, his approval rating is like 97, 98%. Um, and there's a monument being built up about him to his life, you know, 40, 50 years after his death in, in Washington. And so his messages were sufficiently universal that future generations would resonate with them and find them inspiring and keep moving forward in, in his name because they were, they were aspirational, they were universal. And this goes back to my comment about the marshmallow task. He wasn't thinking about a win right now. He was thinking about a win in policy that would affect people, especially black Americans, for 20, 30, 50, 100 years. And, and that's why that type of messaging, I think, is like so, so powerful if you can tap into it in, in, in the right way, um, is that it just carries forth. Or how, you know, how many years later are we talking about Lincoln still? And people still find him an inspiration. And, and it's because of those reasons that he was able to look beyond the horizon and see something much bigger than the moment. So beautifully put, so beautifully put. It's almost like um, I'm seeing here the potential for us to embrace paradox, right? Uh, which is something I constantly look out for. This podcast is called Intersections, about dissolving boundaries, you know, trying to remove artificial dichotomies and all of that, right? And so what I think I'm hearing from you here is that there is a way to be of service to the people today and to kind of like meet them where they are even with the constraints you face in how they're thinking or approaching or what emotions are at play, et cetera. So there's some calculus a leader has to do to show up the right way in order to have some meaningful moving of the needle today. And yet there is an ideal state which may not be attainable today. And it might be something that people are actually going to, you know, as a majority, let's say even reject, you know, if you were to kind of like really push that. But can you speak yeah. in a language which is coded enough so that both the people today can be fired up to do like that one step forward thing but also which will be looked upon from the future in a way that is understood and interpreted through a much more universal lens. Yeah, I, and I think of it like any type of change, whether we're talking about societal change right now or whether I'm talking about, I'll go back to my lab because it's where I have leadership and power, is I often think of it as very incremental. In fact, when I think about changes in my lab, I think about cultural innovations, trying out changes in the culture a policy or a practice, and I want to see if it works. And if it works, I want to sustain it, embed it in our rituals and our future practices. But I'm thinking of it often like I think of drafts of a manuscript, like when I'm writing a book or writing a paper. It's I go through 50 rounds of edits for everything I write, and, and I can try to write a good first draft, but I never try to write a perfect first draft. I just try to get something on paper that's better than what I have, and then I try to each round think more, read more, edit more, share it with other people, get their feedback and make it better. And so the way I think of leadership is very much through revising drafts rather than trying to arrive at your optimal end solution, because it's almost impossible to get to the optimal end solution. People often won't go along with you. They're going to resist it or it's too much uncertainty. So try to get something that people can work on, get their input, improve it make it a little bit better. Or another metaphor for it would be like passing the baton in a relay race. Like in my lifespan, I'm only going to get it so far, but I want to get, you know, my, my department, my, my community, my country uh, in a better situation than before I, you know, before I was here and then pass it on to the next generation to make it better and give that they have energy and ideas that are going to be better and 
than mine and more informed because there's gonna be more science, more information, more technology, but I, I wanna make it a little bit better and then pass it on to them. And so I think there's also like, we don't have to put all this burden on ourselves all the time that we can, and you know, the research backs us up. I'm a big group psychology person, but I use group psychology in the groups I run. I crowdsource things. Crowdsourcing makes our decision-making way better because you leverage the insights of many other people and you help help account and adjust for some of your own blind spots. So let's crowdsource things, but we should be doing the job of moving things better, creating the conversation, uh, but also leveraging the insights of and diverse perspectives of people around us to, to move the ball forward. Yeah, yeah. You reminded me, you know, I, I used to be really fond of math, you know, I kind of like majored in it in college and kind of like persisted with it for a while more in graduate school as well, although it's in business, but it was kind of a mathematical, you know, treatments of business. But anyway, there's something called Zeno's paradox. I don't know if you've heard of that, Jay. Yeah, 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 I yeah. have, yeah. You know that? Like, like, there's no way I can get from here to the end of this room yeah. because to get there, yeah, you know that, right? Like, I just, for our yeah. listeners, I have to go half the way. And when I'm at half point, well, then there's the other half left. So then I'll have to go half of that distance. And when I've done that, there'll be the rest of the distance. Then I have to go half of that distance. And there's always half of something else that I still have to do. So therefore, I can never get there, right? That's Zeno's paradox. But I think, you know, if I take what you're saying, it's like that's the ideal point, you know, getting to the end of the room and that relay race. I can at least go at least go some part of the way and then I give it to somebody else and somebody else. And maybe we'll never get maybe we'll never get to complete yeah. utopia, complete perfection. But there'll be the satisfaction that I went, you know, half the distance of some some journey. Yeah, I think that's the goal. And and I think, you know, a lot of organizations were, were two and a half years into this pandemic. There's enormous amounts of burnout. And when, when people are, a lot of people, and burnout often happens among people who are passionate, who are trying to make a difference at work or, or in their community or in society. Those are the people who burn out. You get a huge burnout out of caregivers, who are, the people who are already doing the most to care for people in, in the world and care for their, their loved ones. And so I think like, Putting all of this on anyone's shoulders is going to, it likely leads to these types of outcomes where you're going to try really hard and then you burn out and then maybe you never come back to it. I think it's much, much more powerful to think of like, what kind of change can we do right now that's sustainable and that we'll pick up later and keep moving forward or other people are going to help us move forward the next part of the way? Because putting it all in, on anyone or any small group of people's shoulders is probably not sustainable either. Yeah. Thank you. I want to close out by coming back to one of the very early themes we came up with, which is this um, kind of human tendency towards, you know, affiliating with one group and then looking at other groups from the outside and sometimes standing in judgment of them and competing with them and what have you. You gave us this incredible story of Addy and Rudy uh, and their lifelong rivalry and what it did, did to that their town divided across the river. And I, I wanted to kind of like share, um, you know, because you, you mentioned Gandhi and what he did with the British people, which I thought was a very powerful point that what I noticed with him is that he ended up actually, like you said, taking them in his embrace as well and actually saying that, look, you need to leave India and let us rule, uh, you know, our own selves because that's in your best interest, not that that's in, because you are becoming morally corrupt with the manner in which you're actually operating as a system because of what. So I care for you so much that I want you to be happier, more virtuous people. And as a society, I know at the heart, you're really pure. 
Uh, and that's what I'm seeking to awaken in you. I mean, it was an incredible, you know, and he did win over the British public much before he won over the British politicians and the system changed. And the British public were a key force in helping to put pressure and, and setting expectations. And ultimately, he won over the hearts of many parliamentarians. Churchill was one heart he wasn't able to melt as much. And so it was in those five years where Churchill was actually voted out of power between 1945 and 1950 is when India actually was able to you know, get its independence, you know, from the British. But, uh, but anyway, just an it's example of how strengths, but also some weaknesses. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. True, true. I mean, an incredible man. I mean, I, I'm, you know, very inspired yeah. by him. But as you said, with very fierce blind spots as well. Uh, yeah, and I know yeah, you, you talked a little bit about him in this book. I think we have some right. shared uh, interests in some of these people. Very cool, Jay. I mean, I'd actually love to have you back at some future point. Uh, you know, because there's so much more to unpack in this, and I'm sure between now and when we bring you back together, there'll be even more. You know, that you would have uh, unpacked in the research and the insights that you're generating. One thing I realized we haven't even spoken much about is just identity engineering for your own self and the stereotype threat issues and other such things that are happening. One thing I really liked in your book is um, you are very upfront in acknowledging the. Uh, replication crisis, you know, that has hit the field of psychology and the need, therefore, to apply more rigor, pragmatism, care in the way certain claims are being made, right? And so maybe we can just kind of end with that, right? And so for our listeners, um, what is the replication crisis? And um, for, for avid consumers of, you know, psychological research today, what guidance would you have for them on how to do it the right way? What are you impassioned about in terms of your going forward agenda? What are you next working on? And that should bring us to closure. Okay, so the, the replication crisis is something that really has been roiling in psychology, but it's also in all sciences. It's everything from medical science, cancer research, biological sciences, the last 10 years. And there's really a revolution underway to figure out how can we have better methods and how can we create better incentives in the field and in our journals to publish more rigorous, replicable work rather than just stuff that's really exciting. And so there's been a huge effort to replicate a number of findings and some have replicated, but many have not. And so we've kind of been sorting through what the wheat versus the chaff. Um, but I think the main lesson is, I, I think of threefold. One is that there is a really healthy and necessary dissent that needs to happen in any, any organization, including in science. And, and, and I think that's baked into the DNA of science is that we should constantly be criticizing ourselves and getting better. Science doesn't believe that we know everything. We're not, this is where we're different from religion or, or politics. We think that we're always learning more and getting better. And so that's part. So it's a natural thing for science to constantly be criticizing and trying to replicate stuff and find out what works and what doesn't work. So that's good. And then I think the big lessons for us is that we need to run larger, more powerful studies. We need to be transparent about our materials and our data and share it. Um, we need to use modern tools like pre-registration where we lay out all our predictions in print so everybody can see them before we collect our study. And so... What, what most people have been doing, certainly what my lab has been doing over the last, I think, 15 years now, we've been slowly scaling this up in our lab, is leaning into the reforms that we think are the evidence backs up. And so this is, we've been sharing data now for like 13, 14, 15 years. We share all our preprints openly to get comments before we publish them. We uh, make all our data publicly available now whenever it's ethical to do so, which is, you know, 99% of the time. Um, and now we pre-register a lot of predictions and run replications in other studies. And, and the other thing that we've been doing, this is not really part of the replication crisis, but I think it's an outgrowth of it, is we're trying to get more diverse samples 
And not only that, but look around the world. So, right, I just published a, a paper on COVID. We had data from 67 countries. So we teamed up with 255 other scientists. You want to talk about the, the science of groups and teamwork? Well, I had to apply it because I ran, ran this project during COVID. Now I'm doing a version of that in 80 countries looking at climate change interventions. Um, next fall, we're planning a study in 50, more, 50 or more countries looking at the effects of social media on people's polarization and mental health. And so what we're trying to do is use the science from our book to, to create teams to run better science so that when we draw conclusions, it's no longer just based on undergrad students at, at a North American university. It's based on the broadest possible sample of humans. And so when we get insights now that people around the world can understand them and use them, or they can at least look at the data from their own country and see what worked there. And so I think that's kind of what the replication has kind of replication crisis brought us is all these better methods, bigger studies. You know, I just published a paper with 15 million people moving around the world. I, I have these studies on social media, 500,000. We just published one of 2.7 million messages. The scale and scope and ambition of the research is so much better. It's so much more exciting. It's so much more trustworthy. It's so much more pragmatically useful to humanity. And, and now the direction that we're going that I'm excited about is these global studies looking at real behavior around the world and teaming up with people who have perspectives and insights into those countries so that they can use it. And so it's not just any, you know, I'm Canadian, so I'm not even American, but so much of science is run out of like, you know, the top 20 American universities. We're trying to expand the scope and bring other people into the conversation. And, and we want to get data that's representative, not just of 300 million Americans, but of, you know, seven, eight billion people around the globe eventually. That's our vision. You know, one, one thing I, I'm drawing from the way you just reacted to my question and shared with us both the, the realities of the limitations of science as a work in progress, but yet the capacity and opportunity today to advance it is the, you know, that you have a passion for truth. And yeah. I, it seems to me like that's probably the human transformation we need, you know, in so many disciplines, journalism, uh, certainly in science as well, in decision making, you know, bodies um, at the global policy level, as well as in business and what have you. If we could ground people in saying that their first and only love is to discover the truth, not as much to protect their egos or to kind of like, you know, feel secure in their role because what if they are proven wrong tomorrow or something, you know, if all of those kinds of that clutter in the mind could be put aside and you're just taking joy, taking joy and just like whatever it is that truth is telling me in the present moment and correcting me from my own perhaps misjudgments of the past, right? Like, wouldn't that be a beautiful world? Yeah, I, I'll say this is another project I'm doing. I have a grant that we're studying uh, the construct of intellectual humility and we're trying to figure out the best way to measure it. And, and that is a mindset that is embracing the truth. It's understanding that I, I might know a lot, you know, I have my PhD, yeah. I'm a professor, blah, 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 but I don't know even more. And so I yeah. have to kind of walk through the world with an understanding that each new study hopefully will help me understand something a little bit better. Each new conversation will, like your conversation, the conversation we had where you made me rethink kind of the implications of Puma and Adidas from the story I had, I hadn't even thought about that. And it was like really yeah. insightful. Now I'm gonna walk away with that and probably carry that stored and thinking forward and dig into it a bit more. And so I, my goal is each conversation I go into, I wanna walk away with a little bit smarter, a little bit more insightful because I kind of have that approach that we should all just kind of have a little bit of humility no matter how much we know, there's always a lot more to learn. And to me, cause I care about truth a lot. Um, that's probably the most exciting part of my job is <laughs> just like engaging yeah. with people, engaging with data and learning more and kind of slowly getting a little bit smarter about how I think about the world. It reminds me of a quote from Einstein. He said, uh, the difference between what the least knowledgeable person knows 
and what the most knowledgeable person knows is trivial compared to what is not known. Right. So let's focus on what is not known. That's a great quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us, uh, Jay, in, in, in closing, yeah, w- what is your big kind of like area of inquiry? What, what are you most hoping to uncover in the in the years ahead, the next two to four years ahead? Oh, so um, I'm working on now a second book proposal with Dominic Packer, my co-author. Um, he's going to take the lead on this one. And uh, it's really on the dark side of groups. So we're kind of looking now at, we have a draft of the seven deadly sins of groups and organizations. So um, what ways do groups go wrong? We've kind of hinted at a couple of them here. And then what can you do to make them right? So one of the, one of the things that people often want to know after I, after they read my book is they want to know, like, how can I use this to make groups better? And we, we hint at that in our book, but we're not super prescriptive. And so our next book is going to be getting more prescriptive. And talking not only about how to make groups better, but one of the elements of it, at least in our current proposal, is how to make them better not only internally, but how to make them better so they impact the world better. Because some groups are great, but they're raping the world. (laughs) And so we want them to think at multiple levels of how can you be better internally to create a better workplace, a better culture. It's really about culture change, I think. Culture change within organizations and groups. And then how can they spill over and impact the culture around them more positively? Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. I mean, um, do convey my congratulations and uh, good wishes to Dominic as well in the collaboration both of you are doing. Um, I think what you just talked about would be so germane to that journey that I'm taking with these change makers to help kind of advance and teach them because so much of the insights you'll get from there uh, would be of such value to them and their work as well. So I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. If uh, our listeners want to learn more about your work and find a way to stay more in touch with the, the latest, you know, do you have any, yeah, social media, newsletters, other such platforms through which you're putting the word out in between the books that are being written? And again, I want to remind everybody that so much of what we talked about is codified by Jay and his colleague, Dominique, in The Power of Us. Yeah, so the best place to go to learn about our book and our and our speaking engagements and our sign up for our newsletter is powerofus.online. And if you want to find any of my publications, um, and I also have a lab monthly newsletter that's free, of course, all these are free, is J-A-Y-V-A-N-B-A-V-E-L.com. So jvanbavel.com. And uh, I make everything I, uh, all of that stuff is fully free and you can kind of stay abreast of our research and be part of the conversation with us about all these issues going forward. Wonderful. And in the spirit of identity, I have to say that um, I was so pleased just uh, this morning itself to discover that we are a little bit connected in the sense that um, your book, uh, Power of Us, and my book, In a Mastery Outer Impact, both are um, imprints of the Hachette Book Group. So oh, we are, uh, we're actually sharing the same. We like, share yeah, an identity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so cool. Jay, it's been such a joy to have you. You speak with such clarity. Uh, spirit, you know, and uh, and just kind of passion. And that is, uh, I know, a great gift for our audience in addition to just all the wisdom and ideas and truths that you are seeking to offer up to us. So wishing you all the best in the work that you're doing. I know it's in the service of a beautiful cause to advance our understanding of how we as human beings operate both individually and collectively. And I'm looking forward very much to being a consumer of so much that you will produce in the years ahead. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everybody who listened to this. <laughs>